Hello and welcome to the Poetry Exchange. I'm Michael Schaefer. And I'm Fiona Bennett. It's very good to see you, Michael. And you too, Fiona. You've been very busy, haven't you? I've been in Manchester doing a performance in celebration of 75 years of the NHS, put together by Kwame Kwayamar of the Young Vic. There were contributions from 19 different NHS trusts, um, poems and songs and dance pieces, and it was a really beautiful thing. Yeah. That was lovely. I was in Manchester as well, Mm. in the audience for a fabulous poetry reading on Saturday, which was in the International Anthony Burgess Foundation, which is a wonderful building. And I want to do a big shout out to the organisers of this poetry gig. They're called Poets and Players, and they put together poetry readings with two or three poets and a musician, Poets and Players, you Mm. see. And they're always stunning. I think they must be some of the best poetry readings you can go to in the land. Wow, that's great. Are they just in Manchester or do they do them all over the country? I'm pretty sure they're just in Manchester, so it is a localised shout out. But if you are in that neck of the woods, I mean, it's worth a journey even, I'd say. Mm. And on this occasion, there was the fabulous Nick Laird reading from his latest collection, Up Late, and the cellist, Lee Lu, who played some extraordinary solo cello music. And then actually, as it happens, Michael, the guest of our forthcoming episode. We couldn't have written it better, Faye. So I did have the very great pleasure of hearing the wonderful Jacqueline Safra reading on Saturday from her latest collection, Belville's Violin, which we'll say a bit more about at the end. We've been featuring some conversations from back in our archive, but uh, you'll be pleased to know that we've been having more conversations recently. And this is a more recent one. In fact, it was on October the 20th that we recorded this one. So you'll be hearing myself and Michael talking about Ceasefire by Michael Longley, the poem that's been a friend to Jacqueline. Jackie, before we um, get into discussing the poem and your relationship to it, would you mind giving it a reading out loud for us, please? Yeah. Put in mind of his own father and moved to tears, Achilles took him by the hand and pushed the old king gently away, but Priam curled up at his feet and wept with him until their sadness filled the building. Taking Hector's corpse into his own hands, Achilles made sure it was washed and, for the old king's sake, laid out in uniform, ready for Priam to carry, wrapped like a present home to Troy at daybreak. When they had eaten together, it pleased them both to stare at each other's beauty as lovers might. Achilles built like a god, Priam good-looking still and full of conversation, who earlier had sighed, I get down on my knees and do what must be done and kiss Achilles' hand, the killer of my son. Thank you so much. Mm, thank you. Would it be helpful to fill in a little bit of the sort of background of the of the Greek, of the Iliad and the Homer? Yeah, I was just going to suggest that. Yeah. I think that's useful. 
I mean, I've always been um, a great fan of Greek myth. I think all of humanity and inhumanity can be found in the myths. And I think Longley has a very similar attitude and was a classicist or is a classicist, I should say. And this story is about revenge, I suppose, in a way, forgiveness and coming together. Achilles killed Hector. Hector was the son of Priam. And in this poem, Priam comes to beg for his son's body, to take his son's body back to bury it, and reminds Achilles of his own father. And there's some kind of understanding between them that comes through that. And it was a revenge killing, really, because Hector killed Achilles' friend Patroclus. So there's all that going on. And the body of Hector was desecrated by Achilles, who pulled the the body behind him on a cart. So it was a very violent story. And there was divine intervention in the the Iliad, but in this story, it's all about human intervention. And it's a moment of ceasefire before things hot up again. Priam does get to take his son's body home to Troy with him. And then, of course, we have the story of the violence and the sacking of Troy. So it's not that everything's over, but there is just this moment of, of shared humanity And, you know, I think given the current state of the world, and I'm thinking particularly now about the Israel-Palestine conflict, this is a moment to really appreciate this poem. It speaks also of any war, really. It's a very universal poem in that sense. And I think the fact that he has used Greek myth to explore this is really amazing. He wrote it just before the ceasefire in Northern Ireland, and it was published in the Irish Times, I think, 1994. And that ceasefire was the one that led to the Good Friday Agreement. So it was a very important date for him. So it kind of rings, reverberates down the centuries, doesn't it? This poem in the most astonishing way. It takes both ancient history and the present time and actually the future (laughs) inside it. Yes, there's so much in that title, isn't there? Yeah. So imagine then, Jacqueline, that it's been with you for a while, this poem. Oh, yeah, I think I keep returning to it. And I can't even remember the first time that I read it. But each time I have a sense that there's no recovery from whatever awful conflict is happening and that people are not speaking to each other. You know, different sides are not having that communication, um, let alone a point for forgiveness or understanding. I come back to this poem. You know, I came back to it when Russia invaded Ukraine you know, and, and, and at other times. Wherever it is, it works for any any awful, terrible conflict when we're talking about people trying to understand each other and feeling some empathy. Yeah, it's really how the poem opens, isn't it, is with empathy, put in mind of his own father and moved to tears. Mm. That's such a brilliant opening. It, it kind of sets us up, doesn't it, I think? Also men crying, you know. <laughs> You know, when was the last time you saw a male leader crying in the current world, you know? Yeah, and, you know, a warrior crying. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about the second line then as well. Achilles took him by the hand and pushed the old king gently away. Yes. So is that he's going, oh, no, I can't. Do you think it's about some kind of inner struggle he's having with himself? You know, am I going to find some connection with this man or am I going to tell him to leave, maybe, 
Yeah, that's what it seems to me like. He's sort of almost going, I can't, can't allow myself to see that similarity. You know, I've got to keep you at distance or all that's going to flood through me. But then Priam kind of moves it, doesn't he? Yeah. In the Iliad, there's actually a ransom demanded and Priam turns up with like lots of treasure. Uh, I think the interesting thing about the Longley is it's a kind of re-envisioning of this whole story very much connected with with human agency and with humanity isn't it because there's no you know there's no ransom in this poem it's priam turns up unannounced and the connection is to do with recognizing some commonality of experience yes and wept with him until their sadness filled the building and that's interesting because i when i was practicing reading this poem i've actually underlined the word with I, i felt like that was very important and, you know, what that achieves in that line. And then in that second stanza, there's a respect for Hector and for Priam in the, there's a sort of a reverence about how he makes sure that the corpse is washed. Yeah, interesting. Ready for Priam to carry wrapped like a present home to Troy at daybreak. That's interesting, isn't it? It's quite surprising, that wrapped like a present. Yeah, I was having a discussion with my husband about that line, actually, and he said, that's the only line in the poem I don't like. He said, why not the word gift rather than the word present? And I I thought a lot about that. I mean, I always think of gift as being something a little bit more sacred than a present and obviously with more kind of metaphorical resonance. And I'm interested in that choice of a word. And I feel like there's a little bit of irony in there Mm. because we kind of know what follows this. You know, it's a little bit of cynicism creeping in, probably in the only place where it happens in the poem. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Almost as if Michael Longley's felt he can't allow that idea to really float, that this would resolve with this this action, that it would be okay for him to do that. Yeah, maybe it serves to sort of not let him off the hook, if you like, to remind us that actually there's a terrible thing happened here. You know, perhaps it stops it from becoming cheesy. too easy. <laughs> and a bit cheesy. Uh, too easy or cheesy. A bit cheesy. Easy and cheesy. <laughs> yeah. And then I was really surprised by... When they had eaten together, it pleased them both to stare at each other's beauty as lovers might. I wasn't expecting that turn. I'm really interested to know how you feel about that. Um, I think it's a bit like seeing someone for the first time and connecting with them. And maybe it is a little bit like you feel when you fall in love with someone, that you, you suddenly see them maybe in in a different light and they're seeing each other in a different light. I mean, there is also this this theory about Achilles and Patroclus who was murdered, you know, that they were lovers and there have been novels written about that. So I wonder whether there is some kind of homoerotic thing going on here. I, I don't know. It's possible that there is that kind of connection. Achilles built like a god and Priam good looking still. But it is curious, isn't it? It certainly made, makes me pause when I get to it. You can really see the look that's happening between them. It's such a brilliant choice of description for that, even if I don't know or understand necessarily what's being said narratively. I get the atmosphere of the moment. I get the look. Also, the other thing that happens when lovers have that connection, as you were describing, Jacqueline, is that 
the whole of the rest of the world falls away mm. as well. So maybe that's also part of that choice is that it's to do with no longer having to carry the position, you know, what's everybody else in the room doing is what it starts to make me think, mm. you know, as they choose to to forgive. Yeah. I think also it's worth mentioning that the, the whole idea of breaking bread together, of course, is very resonant and very symbolic allowing that connection you know especially in those times of the idea of sharing a meal obviously very very crucial and then what's interesting is the way the poem loops back again it almost goes back in time and with that very quite difficult I think sort of syntactical construct at the end of the third stanza the priam good looking still and full of conversation comma who earlier had sighed um Really tricky to get your head around that, isn't it? Yeah, I had to reread that a few times. Yeah, and I can't help feeling, bless Michael Longley, and I'm sorry to have to say this, but I wondered whether he was trying to get that rhyme in between might and side, and that might have been part of the reason that we get that strange moment. But on the other hand, it does make us think about the time frame and the chronology and... So who earlier had sighed, I get down on my knees, loops us back to the beginning of the poem when Priam curled up at his feet. So, you know, he, he's a very bright man and a brilliant poet, so I'd like to think it was intentional. But it is a tricky moment and it takes a few reads to get it, I think. The rhymes are really wonderful, though, aren't they? They've just got enough completeness and closingness on them. They don't kind of over-chime. I don't know how he's done that quite. It's very clever. They're not everywhere. So in, in the first stanza, you've got tears and what should rhyme with it? It becomes the word and. Mm. And in the second stanza, you've got sake and daybreak, which are big rhymes, but then you've got Achilles and carry, which has a little bit of a consonant going on that is similar. It, it, that last couplet with that big full chiming rhyme, done and sun. And isn't it interesting how those two words are paired? They're kind of attracted to each other somehow, Dunn and Son, aren't they, in the poem and in the story? I mean, he, he tends towards very long lines, doesn't he, Longley? And one of the reasons this poem is very difficult to read is because of the long lines. If you look at the first stanza, for example, it's all one sentence. Right, yeah. That's interesting because I was going to ask you about the breaking of it into the four parts. Yeah. And I actually wonder if that is partly to help us. What strikes you about that, well, Queen of Sonnets? <laughs> well, you can tell I've chosen a sonnet because I do love sonnets. And Well, thank you for calling me Queen of Sonnets. I have written quite a lot of them. But it's interesting reading it out loud because it actually the numbers very much get in the way if you try and read it with the numbers in it. So I deliberately took those out, especially the last one where the final couplet runs on from the previous line. But if you say four in the middle of those, it becomes very confusing. So I think maybe he is trying to help us or maybe he's making it a kind of episodic poem, isn't it? So the first bit is the curling up at the feet and the weeping. And the second one is the corpse being laid out. And the third one is eating together. So you have the basically three different scenes unfolding isn't it wonderful, though, the way a poem is working on you and you don't even know how it's happening? <laughs> As you say, episodic and aware of Michael with a theatre 
background and thinking of Brecht's approach to theatre, which was that sort of focus on laying out the action as opposed to the empathetic swell of emotion and being sort of carried through something. I wonder if there's also something of that here. He's not getting carried away with anything sentimental, even though he's talking about them looking at each other like lovers and there's still this distance. There's a cool regard in this poem, I think. Yes, which goes back to our earlier comments about easy and cheesy, doesn't it? Because it could easily tip into something quite sentimental, this poem, but it, it doesn't. And I do, I agree. I think those numbers do help to give us pause, don't they? And, and they make a, a longer pause between stanzas than you would get if it was just a stanza break. Can I ask you, Jackie, to talk about that last couplet? I get down on my knees and do what must be done. Why is kissing Achilles' hand the thing that he needs to do? Well, it's because he wants his son's body back and he's prepared to, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, humiliate that. himself or something or, you know, to beg, to beg to the extent. I mean, imagine going and begging the person who's killed your son to return his body and having to kiss his hand when probably what you want to do is stab him through the heart, you know. And I, I don't know if I dare say this, but I'm thinking about these hostages in Gaza and thinking if there was a different approach, um, you know, whether that would yield a, a different result. And I think that's one of the reasons why this poem is so present in my life at the moment, is I'm thinking that the cycle of revenge, which the Greeks really understood, this cycle of revenge is never going to end. Is It feels like it's it's forever. And so for me, this poem is opening up the possibility of some kind of forgiveness or connection and recognition of common humanity. And I think what's going on there is that Priam does humiliate himself in this way. He does do what probably does not come naturally because of the outcome that he wants. And then Achilles responds in a very human, very connective, very empathic way thinking of his own father. It's so interesting, the structure of this, that loop around, as you called it. It's like it's turning a vicious circle of revenge into a kind of a virtuous circle yeah. of, of empathy and humanity somehow, which I just think is extraordinary. Yes, and actually thinking about that and thinking about the temporal aspects of the poem, it's all in the past tense, but then that just that piece of dialogue at the end it's, I get down on my knees and do what must be done is the present tense, even though it's referring to the past and obviously it's reported speech. But nevertheless, it kind of brings us firmly into the present. And now I'm thinking about Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement and effort of will and love to bring that about. And all the hiccups on the way that, that eventually led to it a most astonishing piece of lawmaking of of change showing it's possible you know whatever happened after and continues to happen you know that's that cycle was really broken at that point and it's just so wonderful today you know to be introduced to this friend when it's so hard to see hope or to keep thoughts of of the positive possibilities of humanity Oh, thank you. Can I, can I just read you a tiny bit of something that Longley said about the poem? Mm, please. He said, when I was writing it, it was at the time when there were rumours of an IRA ceasefire. 
and I wrote it partly because I do have some sense of the magic of poetry in the world, hoping that it would make some tiny, tiny, minuscule, unimportant contribution to the drift towards a ceasefire. That's fantastic. But I love that idea about a tiny contribution to the drift. Yeah. You know, and in these big geopolitical things, that's perhaps the the most we can hope for uh, is is to add tiny contributions to the drift. Yes. There's a quote from the Mishnah, which is the first book of Jewish law, which I carry in my heart. And the Mishnah, so it has lots of quotes from ancient rabbis, most of which are completely nuts, but there are a few that are really brilliant. And, and this one from Rabbi Tarfon, um, do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Walk justly now, walk humbly now. You are not obligated to finish the work, nor are you free to abandon it. And I think that speaks very much to Longley saying some tiny, tiny, minuscule, unimportant contribution is that we all, if we all make some tiny, tiny, minuscule, unimportant contribution, that could amount to something meaningful and substantial. Does this poem give you hope? I think hope, I find hope a very complicated word. I'm never quite sure what to make of it because I think hope can be an excuse for inaction. And I guess I'm sort of temperamentally an activist. I was always brought up with the idea that Tikkun Olam, which is, is the Hebrew for healing the world, you know, that in, in, on some level it is my responsibility uh, in an incredibly grandiose way to try and do something to make the world a better place. So I think hope can make us a little bit um, passive. I see it as more of a kind of galvanising poem, actually, that um, it is possible to ask for forgiveness and to be forgiven. But the, both, both those acts are very active, aren't they? They're not, they're not about hoping, they're about actually doing something. So I think that the comfort in this poem for me is that human beings have the capacity for change, but with the full acknowledgement that it's incredibly difficult to do that. Michael Longley, Ceasefire. Put in mind of his own father, and moved to tears. Achilles took him by the hand and pushed the old king gently away. But Priam curled up at his feet and wept with him until their sadness filled the building. Taking Hector's corpse into his own hands, Achilles made sure it was washed and for the old king's sake laid out in uniform ready for Priam to carry, wrapped like a present, home to Troy at daybreak. When they had eaten together, it pleased them both to stare at each other's beauty as lovers might. Achilles built like a god, Priam good-looking still and full of conversation, who earlier had sighed, I get down on my knees and do what must be done, and kiss Achilles' hand, the killer of my son. That was Fiona with the gift reading at the end there. 
Our thanks, of course, to Jacqueline for giving us the time to have that wonderful conversation and for allowing us to share it with you. And also to Jonathan Cape for allowing us to use that incredible Michael Longley poem. So we'll put details of that on the description page and we'll also put details of Jacqueline's brilliant latest collection, her fifth collection, Belville's Violin, published by Nine Arches Press. It's very, very beautiful, tender, powerful, honest and brilliant set of poems that speaks to times past and to now and to aspirations for better ways of being in humanity in the future. So I think it's a great, a great book to seek out. Lovely. Thank you, Faye. Speaking of our shared humanity, uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to remind everybody that our anthology of poems, all about poems as friends and about how poems live in the world for people and their relationships with them. We're very, very nearly there now, Faye, aren't we? There's there's a few little dotting of I's and crossing of T's happening um, backstage, as it were. But um, the book is available for pre-order and it will be out in the world on May... Oh, Fee, I've forgotten the date. What is it? May... It's not May the 4th, is it? No, May the 9th. Oh, it's May the 9th. I thought it was Star Wars Day. It's not. It's May the 9th. So, uh, yeah, you can go to wherever your uh, favoured book retailer is and you can pre-order. Um, and it's, uh, it's going to be a really beautiful thing. And we've got details of that on the Poetry Exchange website. We've got an anthology page dedicated to that. I will also quickly say, just as a teaser, Fiona, that we are going to be doing another evening of online poetry readings with an incredible lineup of readers. In the Company of Poems, we call it. We've done two before. The feedback we've had has been amazing. So it looks like it's going to be February. We'll give you more details in coming months. Looking forward to that. So we've been getting into our habit of the bonus poem, Michael. I love the bonus poem, Faye. So do I. I think we've thanked before, but this is thanks to Charlie that this happens. So thank you again, Charlie. Thanks to one of our dear listeners. It's just terrific. We have had one poem nominated, which is not just a poem that's been a friend to somebody, but the poem itself is on the theme of friendship. And I thought, um, given what you were just saying about the work that we do and the anthology and this idea of companionship, that that might be a lovely way for you to lead us through to the end of the episode. Thanks, for Yes, this is by Carrie Williams Clifford, and it's called Friendship. Not by the dusty stretch of days, slow gathering to lengthening years, we measure friendship's chain but by the understanding touch, the smile, the soul kiss, yea, the tears that ease the load of pain. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Michael. And thank you to all of you. We'll be back next month with more Poems as Friends. Thank you for listening. Thank you.